0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. You you know, it's always struck me as a little unfair that stories about kids and teens who grow up and find themselves or whatever have their own name, you know, a Bildungsroman. I don't know, maybe it's just the 30-something in me that's just like, listen, adults gotta figure themselves out too, and it isn't a walk in the park. In a bit, we'll hear from acclaimed author Jumboli Hiri and her book Whereabouts, in which its central character spends a lot of time alone and tries to figure out her place in the world. But there's another way to find yourself too, and that's to interrogate your own past. You know, find out who the people you came from really are. That's what Maud Newton did for her memoir, Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and Reconciliation. What she found wasn't great. But she talks to NPR's Ari Shapiro about the responsibility she feels to make up for her lineage.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveWrite, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and... snacksing? Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
3: Everyone's family tree has some gnarled branches. In the author Maud Newton's past, there are ancestors who committed violence, extremism, racism and worse. Rather than shove that inheritance under the bed in a locked box, she excavates it in her new memoir, Ancestor Trouble. Maud Newton, welcome to All Things Considered.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Where do you think your impulse to confront the darkness in your family's past rather than push it out of sight comes from?
4: You know, because I grew up with a father who was very explicitly racist, I didn't really have the option that a lot of people had to sort of ignore those histories in my family.
3: When you say explicitly racist, he thought you shouldn't watch Sesame Street because it showed black and white kids playing together. He thought slavery should not have ended. I mean, this is really extreme.
4: Yeah. I mean, he was a very explicit white supremacist. He literally defended slavery and felt that it was a benevolent institution That was working for everyone until Northern Bleeding Hearts got involved. So when you grow up with someone like that, you have to have a relationship to it. And luckily, my mother was not on the same page. And I grew up in Miami. So it wasn't an environment like the place where he grew up in the Mississippi Delta in the middle of the last century, where these kinds of ideas were probably more prevalent.
3: And yet I could imagine some people, upon reaching adulthood, saying, well, thank goodness I'm done with that, and running as far away from it as they could, instead of, hmm, what other skeletons might be in this closet?
4: Yeah, I am just a really inherently curious person, and I always did feel a responsibility to reckon with that history in some way, But what really drew me to researching my family were the -the over-the-top stories on my mom's side.
3: But one of the things that I found interesting about your process of research and discovery is that even some of the things that were initially sources of pride turned out to have a dark side when you dug a little deeper. Like, you discovered that one of your ancestors founded the city of Northampton, Massachusetts. When you first learned that, what was your initial reaction?
4: I was so amazed because I thought my family was Southern on both sides. And I was also really proud. This was an ancestor. His wife was accused of being a witch in Puritan, Massachusetts, long before Salem. And she was criminally tried and she beat the charges so I thought, wow, not only do I come from a witch, well, an accused witch, but I also come from, you know, this person who managed to survive that. Yeah. Uh, so I was really excited at first.
3: And then you dug a little deeper, and what did you find?
4: I found that, as you say, in founding the town of Northampton, My ninth great-grandfather was very deeply involved in displacing and killing Indigenous people on that land and taking their land. He was actually involved in negotiating between the really powerful people in the town and the Indigenous people. So it was a particularly troubling role That he played. You know, I think they thought that he was their friend. And then in Mary's case, my ninth great grandmother, Mary Bliss Parsons,
3: the accused witch.
4: Yes. um, What I discovered was that when rumors began to circulate again that she was a witch, she and her family chose to make an example of a Black woman to pin those rumors on her and they orchestrated a trial in which she was sentenced to lashes.
3: As you discovered these dark things about even the chapters of your family history that you had thought would be a source of pride, what was your reaction?
4: I was particularly disturbed to find that my mom's mother's family also had a history of enslaving people. And that was a real gut punch.
3: Because you knew that your father's side had this, but to discover it on your mother's side too was unexpected.
4: Absolutely. And at first I was really taken aback, but it was really important because I realized that this is all over my family. And really this is, you know, the history of our country. And so it sort of redoubled my commitment to being very transparent about this and talking about it publicly.
3: As you say, this is more than the history of your family. Genocide of Indigenous people, enslavement of Black people, these are part of American history. So how do you relate the personal ancestry work that you're doing to the national movement going on right now to confront some of these issues?
4: I think it's very important for those of us who come from these histories to get really personal about them, to learn about what our ancestors did, and then to talk about it. So that we're not lecturing people about what needs to happen in a sort of theoretical way, but we're saying things like, you know, a little more than 150 years ago, my ancestors were enslaving people and That's something I really think about, and here's how that makes me feel. The power of making things personal is really important in this moment.
3: You say we need to learn and think and talk about it. Is there also an obligation of restitution? I mean, what responsibility do you bear for the crimes in your family tree?
4: Absolutely. I believe that we need to have reparations you know as we begin to see how our families people with histories like mine overlap with the systemic problems that we still see in our country we really need to advocate
3: for change what would you say to people who think look i don't know those people i wasn't around then i didn't do that i'm a different person this is not my problem
4: i think that's a common reaction and I would ask people to think really carefully about the ways that what their ancestors did led to privileges for them that other people don't have. And I also believe making it about our own feelings and talking with people like that rather than trying to force them to feel a certain way can be useful. So if I talk about how I feel, maybe that will crack something open for people who are resistant like that.
3: Maud Newton's memoir is called Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation. Thank
2: you so much for talking with us about it.
4: Thank you so much.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu.
0: There's a lot of just vibing out in Jhumpa Lahiri's book Whereabouts. The character spends a lot of time by herself. Even when she's with other people, she's still feeling mostly alone. And there's a funny moment in this interview where NPR's Mary Louise Kelly asks her about writing a book that's kind of low on plot that leads to an interesting exchange about what even is plot?
5: Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jhumpa Lahiri's new novel is all about small, intimate moments playing out in public places. We never learn the main character's name. It could be anyone in any place. The text is spare, the book is short, stripped of the usual details and specifics that authors use to build a plot and characters. And yet, Improbably, there is a delicious sense of place. And just to make things a little more challenging, Lahiri wrote it in Italian first, then translated it into English. The novel is titled Whereabouts, and Jimpa Lahiri is with us now. Welcome. Thank you. So I believe I'm correct in saying you never come out and tell us where the novel is set. Am I also correct in thinking you might have had Rome, Italy in mind?
1: (laughs) Yes, I did, uh, very much so. The book was born in Rome and set in my head in, in Rome and written almost entirely on return visits to
5: Rome. And why hold back on all the little identifying geographic details? You tell us we're in the piazza. You never tell us its name. How come?
1: This has been a choice that... Uh, has been in place for more or less all of my writing in Italian. My previous body of work, all of the work in English was so deeply entrenched in names, places, what it meant to be from Calcutta, but living in Boston. And I felt that when I started writing in Italian, I had just moved to Rome and I myself was displaced. I had voluntarily displaced myself. I was engaging with absorbing a new world. So I was acutely aware of place. And so I think that this book really, it distills for me so many of the themes that I've been working at and worrying over in my writing from the very beginning about place and about the meaning of place. But I think that if we take away the names of the places, the name of the city, it's it's more open. I find it more liberating. I think that identity can be a trap at times. I think we can become too fixated on who we are and where we're from. And I think this can actually, and does lead to a lot of very grave problems in the world and for our society and for the way we communicate and and exist and coexist. So that's the the thinking behind it. Again, as I said, when I started writing in Italian, it just came out, and I didn't think to myself coherently, oh, I'm going to not write this character's name. I just didn't write her name. She was just a she,
5: as, as opposed to a woman with a name. Let's talk about her. Let's talk about the, sure. the the unnamed narrator. You do give us a few identifying traits. She's middle-aged. She's Italian. She's a professor. She's also very lonely. I was struck over and over by how isolated, lonely she is, and sometimes she seems to resent it, and other times she seems to revel in it. Why did you want to explore that?
1: Well, it was who she was, right? And I didn't know who she was in the beginning, so I was exploring over the course of writing the episodes, trying to understand who she was, but that's the process of writing right you you write and you discover the character as you move forward and in my case I started putting her in different places to better understand her and i think that as you say she has she has a relationship with her solitude and i think the book is about her relationship with her solitude and i think it puts into focus for me the reality i think that that we all have to have and have to acknowledge a relationship with our solitude. And and in that sense I think this book is is really looking at sort of the more existential question of of who are we and how do we proceed? How do we proceed through life with
5: others and without others? Mm. I want to Take note of something you just said. You talked about writing the episodes of this book. You didn't use the word chapters. Um, they are very short chapters or episodes, but that maybe alerts people listening. There's not really much plot here. There's not, like, there, like usually when I'm interviewing uh, the author of a novel, I'm taking great care not to give away plot twists. There are no <laughs> plot twists here, which is, it's a very brave thing to do in a novel.
1: Well, you know, there's plot and there's plot. I mean, plot is is a sequence of actions. Plot is a sequence of actions that that accumulate and effect some sort of change. And so, in that sense, there is a plot. I would argue it's it's much more interior in some sense. It's it's a first person novel. There's a consciousness, you know, at the center, a character who's observing, who's moving through her days through her weeks, through the course of a year. And and she's actually in movement, right? She's mm-hmm. actually very much in movement. She's moving literally from place to place.
5: She is by the end of the book, without giving away <laughs> a plot twist, she's, she's locking up her apartment and heading for an adventure in yet another place that you don't quite name.
1: Exactly. Oh. So she does change, right? And her circumstances change. And I think that's, I mean, that's plot, right? And... That's what I convey to my students. But plot can be a very subtle thing as well.
5: You've moved back to the U.S. You're living stateside again. Will you keep writing
1: in Italian? Well, I am at the moment. I just finished a book of short stories in Italian that will come out later, probably at the beginning of next year. And I also wrote a book of poetry in Italian that was supposed to come out Last spring, and then was postponed because of the pandemic. I mean, I I do go back to Italy very regularly, uh, barring the pandemic, of course, when yeah. it's been much more complicated. And when I go, it's become my my creative space at this point, and things occur to me, and 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 I am. Always inspired and surprised by what happens when I go to Italy at this point, and all of these books have been born there, needless to say. so we'll we'll see. I mean, I think once the dust settles from the various books that are that are um, in various stages of of completion and pre-publication now, you know, things will go quiet again and and I'll move on to the next project. and but I can't say I can't say whether it will be in in English or in Italian, but it could very well be in Italian at this point. Hmm.
5: I love that. You, you change your location and, and things happen. Yes, and that's very much what the book is in the end. That is Jumpa Lahiri talking about her new book, Whereabouts. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookofthedaynpr.org. At I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast was produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Megan Lim, Justine Kennan, Candice Wang, Ed McNulty, Milton Guevara, Leone Lacani, Phil Harrell, Lily Quiros, Peter Breslow, Melissa Gray, Lauren Hodges, Elena Burnett, and Courtney Dorning. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off.